images are so powerful, right? Like, and they're and we're constantly inundated with images, whether we know it or not. They're in commercials. They're on billboards. You know, regardless of just the TV and movies, which are like also inundating and flooding us. They're also in commercials. You know, they're also in magazine covers, like images. And I wasn't in those images. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path The Highs, the Lows, and the Lessons Learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you just leave this conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Today, we have a really cool and interesting guest doing impactful work, Christopher Riva. Christopher Rivas is quickly becoming one of the most sought-after multi-hyphenates as an actor, author, podcaster, and storyteller. And Chris is actually our first actor on the podcast, which is really exciting. And I think his story is going to resonate with so many listeners, especially those pursuing a non-traditional career path. As I've been navigating my own No Straight Path journey, I've come to realize the value of getting outside of your bubble to expand your view of the world and approach to problems. You know, it just deepens your creativity, it broadens your perspective, it challenges your thinking. And I have to admit, I do love my circle of attorney friends, love you all, but we have similar lived experiences and we have the same training. Having the opportunity to connect with others outside of my bubble through the podcast has deepened my understanding of the world and people. Although I'm an extrovert, research shows that as we get older, our circle gets smaller. And this is certainly the case for me. I have to be intentional about making connections outside of my bubble. And chatting with Christopher Rivas was a reminder of how beneficial these interactions can be. So if you need a push to get outside of your bubble, please let this serve as a reminder. I had the opportunity to see the world reflected through a poet's eyes. Yes, he is a poet. And it was just so beautiful. I had to stop myself from snapping my fingers because there were multiple moments where I felt like I was in a poetry lounge. But before we get to my conversation with Christopher Rivas, I'd love to tell you a bit more about him. He is best known for his on-screen work on the Fox series, Call Me Cat, opposite Mayim Bialik, Leslie Jordan, Kyla Pratt, and Cheyenne Jackson. Rivas authored a book, Brown Enough, that Row House Publishing released in October 2022, and he also developed two podcasts with SiriusXM Stitcher. The first, a limited series called Rubirosa, based on the life of Porfirio Rubirosa, and the second, a 40-episode talk backed by the same title of his book, Brown Enough, out now. I love the Brown Enough podcast, and I think you're going to love my conversation with Chris, so let's get to it. All right. I'm so excited that we have Christopher Rivas with us today on No Straight Path. Thank you so much for being here. I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. So I love Brown Enough Podcast. It is incredible. I listen to it every week and I love the storytelling in it. And I just want to know about your personal story. I'd love to talk about the beginning, about your childhood, about your upbringing. And I'd love to see how little Christopher shows up in the work that you're doing today. (laughs) Yeah. I think little Chris is the manifesto of my work. 
like Little Chris is the mission statement of my work, which is to create art that creates spaces of belonging, you know, or to tell stories that create spaces of belonging. And I think Little Chris comes from Queens, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. born and raised in Queens, Dominican dad, uh, Colombian mom. And I didn't feel like I belonged, which is a weird feeling to be able to recognize, but I was sort of looking for that belonging. I didn't know if it was going to be in some sort of career or vocation. I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't see myself represented. You know, we all know that story and that and that power. It was visceral for me because I did want to act. You know, I had some inclination that was like, I'm trying to act. Mm. So, I didn't have a space of belonging. I didn't feel cool. I didn't feel all these things. I just sort of like felt less than whatever that means. And yet, I, I say it and I know people identify with it. And so, then little me became an artist. And the more art I made, the closer I got to myself, the closer I got to belonging and to self-worth. And does that help? That answer. Yeah, no, I love that. (laughs) I love that. And when you say an artist, what kind of artist were you? What kind of work were you doing? Yeah. So, you know, anything that I I was trying to figure it out, like I would go to, you know, growing up in New York, I'd go to Bowery Poetry Club and I was like, oh, I'm going to do slam poetry and then I'm going to do poetry. And then Mm -hmm. I saw John Leguizamo on Broadway and I was like, I'm going to act. And I went to theater performing arts high school and did the whole fame thing. And and then it was acting and sort of writing. And I was like, I'll write a play. And I realized when I discovered personal storytelling, I don't know if you're familiar with The Moth. But it's just like international. Yeah. Yes, I've read the play, the book that has like Uh, the small stories that are adapted from the moth. It's an excellent book. I need to read that. Yeah, yeah. If you're unfamiliar with The Moth, it is a nonprofit based in New York City dedicated to the art and craft of storytelling. It was founded in 1997, and the organization presents a wide range of theme-based storytelling events across the U.S. and abroad. It often features prominent literary and cultural personalities alongside everyday people like veterans, astronauts, school teachers, and parents. The Moth has a weekly podcast on NPR and four published books, and the book I was referencing was actually All These Wonders, True Stories About Facing the Unknown, and it was incredible. Highly recommend. The organization also hosts the Moth Story Slam events, which are open mic storytelling competitions open to everyone in cities across the U.S., Chris actually won this competition a few times, and it helped him come to a realization about his gifts. I realized that all I was ever doing was facilitating story, like I was a storyteller. So whether I was acting Mm -hmm. on television or acting in a play or writing my own play or writing a poem or writing a TV show or writing a podcast, I was facilitating story. Mm -hmm. And... As I evolved, I realized that I wanted to tell stories that disrupted traditionally white spaces. That was like a, I got to pick the type of stories I told and that I wanted them to be entertaining because sugar helps the medicine go down, but I also wanted them to be medicine. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I love the way that you frame that. And I am just curious about Chris, the storyteller as a child and how that fits into your family framework. Were they supportive of the art you were doing? Do you come from artists? What were your parents thinking? Do you have siblings? Like how did you fit within your family? I have a sister. 
seeing her this weekend. She lives in Austin. Shout out to Lauren. My parents are not artists. They are loud. They are flavor-filled. They are vibrant. They are funny. They have all of the components, you know, Mm -hmm. to be exuberant, to be creatives. And we're all creatives in one way or another. That's like, I just like to put that out there. I think everyone's creating their life for better or for Mm -hmm. worse. And so we all have this creative ability. But my parents are not artists. My dad was the superintendent of our building in Queens. My mom ran a all things and she did a lot of things in medicine, ran medical offices, worked at the emergency room at NYU Hospital. And when I wanted to be an artist, they didn't say no. And that was the highest, highest, highest blessing that they could have given me. They really allowed me to, you know, they both got said no to a lot when they were younger. Mm. They got said no to due to finances, due to, you know, my dad was a wonderful clarinet player, but, you know, men don't play the clarinet, you know, as Pop said to him. And they both had things that didn't allow them to pursue their dreams. You know, even being young parents, like, let's be real. My mom had my sister at 21 years old, you know, so... They decided early on that they were going to say yes to their kids more. They said no, unless the you know unless it was something really stupid and they had to say no, they yeah. shut it down. <laughs> but they allowed me to fulfill my desire safely, and my desire was to explore being an artist. You know whether that meant going to performing arts high school. They knew nothing about it, but they were like, "Yeah, sure, a monologue, okay, cool, yeah, do it." You got in, great. Like, take the train by yourself into the city. You know, I stayed in New York a little to act after high school. Like, cool, do your thing. And then I lived with them in Miami. And I was like, cool, do your thing. And then, you know, went to theater college in California. And they were just like, cool, do your thing. You know, even if that meant taking out exuberant student loans, I know they wanted me to be happy. And that meant supporting me however they could. I love that. That's so amazing when you can just come from a supportive family that really supports your dreams. I certainly have a very similar background. And so it really feels like the sky's the limit when you have the people who love you supporting you. So I love to hear it. And I am just curious about that pivotal moment in your career that's kind of set you on the trajectory and the path that you are on today. So many pivotal moments. (laughs) Part of me is like, I just came back from this little Buddhist retreat and I'm thinking to myself like, oh, have I even had my pivotal moment yet? (laughs) You know, like (laughs) they just keep coming, right? When we open up the space for possibility. But a couple moments that stand out are when I was in college, I was studying theater in college and I discovered that James Bond was based on a Dominican man. And I loved James Bond as a kid. I loved him so much. I wanted to be that, you know, I wanted to be the person and I wanted to play it as a performer. I just thought he was like the coolest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. And finding out that he was Dominican was earth shattering. You know, I'm Dominican. My pops is Dominican. You you telling me like Pierce Brosnan could have had curly hair like this, you know, and and a nose like this and these lips. And I wouldn't have to have pretended to be some white British dude. And that was the first moment where I decided to sort of take back my experience and my story. I can honestly say that. Like, I started to feel the weight of difference. And so, I became kind of obsessed with this man, Porfirio Rubirosa. And I wrote a play about him. And we took that play around the country. And it's beautiful. And then we turned it into a 10-part podcast called Rubirosa. That's what preceded the Brown Enough podcast. And you can listen to it now. It's, It's very special. So, that was a real pivotal turning point for me. 
uh, was discovering this man, discovering like how many other heroes, you know, not to say James Bond is necessarily a hero, but how many other like yeah. people have been taken from bodies of culture and turned white. And I wanted to explore that, that story and that potential, you know, if we had people on that screen who looked like us and sounded like us. So that was one turning point. And then the other turning point was seeing ta Coates, great writer. For those of you listening, definitely read his stuff. Speak about race in America. He was speaking about black and white. And I raised my hand. You know, I said, is Dominican, Colombian, uh, brown kid from Queens? Where does that leave me in the conversation? And he said, not in it. Mm. And I thought of Ruby. <laughs> you know, like I thought of my pops. I thought of Queens. I thought of brownness on a spectrum. And I said, you telling me there's more brown in this world than anything else? And you're telling me we're not in it? We're not here? What does it mean to not be seen and recognized? And it was another moment where I was like, oh, I have to speak up until the lion learns to write. Every story will glorify the hunter. You know, I have to speak up. I have to take back and tell my stories. And so I started writing the book, got a book deal, a podcast called Brown Enough and sort of the Brown Enough universe was born. I love that. That's such an incredible path, incredible story. And I want to go back to just the... I took Spanish, but I might say this incorrectly. Rubirosa. Uh-huh. Beautiful, yeah. <laughs> and that pivotal moment because for a lot of brown people, people of color, a lot of our lives, we don't see people who look like us. And so we internalize this inferiority. And you talked a little bit about not belonging. And do you think that's just connected to the fact that you didn't see yourself in the people on TV or the people you looked up to? Yes. The answer is yes. Because images are so powerful, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, they're, and we're constantly inundated with images, whether we know it or not. They're in commercials. They're on billboards, you know. Regardless of just the TV and movies, which are like also inundating and flooding us, they're also in commercials, you know. They're also in magazine covers, like images. And I wasn't in those images. Mm -hmm. You know, when we really break it down and then you add story, like then you can add story and add like the idea of like, oh, who gets the spread in this magazine, right? The, their story, whose story is told, whose story is worth telling, who gets put up on this giant billboard, whose story is in the movie. So, I think a lot of it has to do with that. But also, mm -hmm. and I didn't have language for this, a lot of it is also watching my parents navigate having to assimilate and change themselves in code switch in order to receive checks from their white bosses. Yeah. Watching them invest and participate in the American dream, which was not necessarily designed for them. So, yes to media and representation and images, just also to the concept of America as a whole, <laughs> like which is not designed for bodies of culture to thrive and yet they need our participation. Yeah. Yeah. And you're so right when you think about assimilation. And did your parents tell you to kind of hold on to that culture? Did you speak Spanish growing up or were they really trying to Yeah. No. You assimilate? know, my sister speaks fluent Spanish because she would spend summers in the DR in the Dominican Republic with my grandma. And, you know, part of why she got to spend summers there is because they were broke and they needed to work. And the grandma was like, oh, I'll babysit her. And they were like, tight. Well, cool. We get to, you know, like <laughs> keep working and pay for one less babysitter or summer camp. 
And then I came along and things kind of changed and, you know, they weren't speaking Spanish in the house. They didn't see it as a necessity for me to learn Spanish, which is not a rare story, you know, for us like first and second gen kids, like or third culture kids. We don't learn our home languages, mother tongues, whatever the term you want to use is. And so, no, I, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I wasn't devoid of Colombian and Dominican and, you know, Latin culture. I had family. We had, you know, we went to the parties, we danced salsa, we ate the food, but the language kind of got left behind. And I do think that is a big part of it. You know, why does the language get left behind? And, you know, in Rubirosa, we do a lot of really honest exploring with my parents about their own journey with assimilation and code switching and why they didn't teach me the language and things possibly lost. Yeah. And I don't want to give it away, but we get pretty honest. Okay. I can't wait to tune in because I've only listened to the Brown Enough podcast. So I need to go back to Rubirosa and tune in. So listeners do that as well. Chris was right. I went back to delve into Rubirosa and the exploration regarding the pursuit of the American dream and assimilation is a fascinating one. It got me thinking about my own journey. My dad is first generation American and we often joke that I'm more Guyanese than him and my uncles. My dad just wanted to fit in. It was hard enough growing up as a black man in the 60s and 70s in America. He wasn't interested in adding another layer of difference. And my eldest uncle reminded me that they lived through the assassination of MLK. The civil rights movement helped raise them. It was important that they claimed their blackness given the political context. Guyanese culture was still part of their upbringing, but they had to balance this with being black in America and the pursuit of the American dream. They saw my grandpa master the art of code switching and followed his lead. Assimilation felt necessary for social mobility. To a certain extent, it still is. Fortunately, the culture is changing. We are embracing difference, understanding and celebrating our roots. And I wanted to get Chris's thoughts on this, his perspective on this cultural shift. Do I think that our generation is embracing our cultures? Yes, I do. I only do because of the responses to the book, you know, like to the communities showing up, to the response to the work. Part of what it takes in order for more and more people to start embracing that, owning their experience, what they know and what they don't know, is more people telling their story. Mm-hmm. You know, the more we tell our story, the more you tell your story, Ashley, the more you share your experience, the more people get to recognize themselves in that experience. And that possibly gives them the courage to ask bigger questions of themselves, of their families, of what they're plugged into, of what they're ready to disconnect from and let go of. So yes, it things are changing. The community is out there. The need is out there in order to be seen and recognized and valued. And more of this allows more people to set themselves free. Yeah. Yeah. And the work that you're doing with the book and the podcast, can you tell us more about like how do you even define brown? This is a big question, but what kind of stories are we talking about when we're talking about brown people? Yeah. So brown is everything between black and white. That's one way to look at it. But the world in general is a binary world. It's this, that, it's yes, no, it's he, she, right? It's it's pass, fail, it's right, wrong. Mm-hmm. And yet there is a middle space. And there is a middle space that is so powerful that says, I don't have to be one thing. It's not right or wrong. Like 
It can be this. It can be unclear and that's okay. It can be they and that's beautiful. I can be more than one thing. You can't put me in a box and yet the world is constantly trying to put you in a box. And brownness is a state of being. It's a more expansive way of thinking. It says like, I don't have to be one thing. I can be all of this. I can be Dominican and not speak the language, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and I'm still that and I'm enough. Embracing brownness to me is a way of saying I am enough right here as I am. Not after I do this or, or get this next thing or learn this, like right here, right now, my cup is full. My cup is overflowing, you know, and on an actual like global thing, I do think there is more brownness if we're talking about the color in the world than anything else mm-hmm. because it is such a spectrum. And so when we say brownness, the stories we're telling, we're exploring, you know, everything, like we said, from student loans to James Bond to Hollywood to the American dream, you know, to dating white women, to dating in general, all through the lens of brownness. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. I am curious about the setback or a difficult time in your journey. If you could tell us a little bit about that and how you overcame it. Yeah. I mean, we're doing so many. (laughs) My buddy is like online dating right now. And he was like, yo, man, I don't understand ghosting. Like we were just, we're chatting one second. It's great. And then like nothing, (laughs) you know? And I was like, dude, I'm an artist. I get ghosted every day. Like, you know, one second you're having this like great meeting and all this stuff is going to happen and this, or, you know, you did three auditions and then you just don't hear from them. You know, setbacks is the ability to get said no to a bunch and just keep showing up. Mm Mm-hmm. To get more specific, right before the pandemic, I booked my first series regular on television. You know, like that's what you work your whole life for. That's what you slept in your car for. That's what you did all this stuff for. And then the pandemic comes and you get an email that says, uh, we'll email you on Wednesday, you know. And then they're like, we'll check in in two weeks. And then we'll check in in July. <laughs> and then they never make the show, you know. And so you go from, almost having more money than you've ever had in your entire life combined to being on unemployment, you know, and I was devastated and that's okay too. I think allow yourself to be devastated, but if you tap into the why again, Mm -hmm. because the why is not the things, right? Like the why is not the cars that's unsustainable when you really get a setback that hurts. But if you allow yourself to be hurt and to feel the low, feel the hurt, feel the disappointment, but but that why is still lighting a fire in you, that feeling, that love, that passion, that joy, it'll start to heal you again from the inside. You know, it'll start to show you who you are and tell you, you know, you don't have to walk away yet. And then what do you know? It all happens all over again. You know, so like, yeah, yeah. Your why will start to heal you from the inside. I thought that was such a powerful way to approach overcoming setbacks in your journey. Remember your why. And we both talked about our whys and shared passion for storytelling. Words provide comfort. They inspire action. Storytelling is a powerful tool that helps us make sense of ourselves and our journeys. I wanted to know if he had any advice for those navigating non-traditional paths. I'll go back to your love of words first. And my favorite chapter in the book is words are spells in your mouth. You know, don't tell that to my to the other chapters that it's my favorite because it's like picking <laughs> a you know, favorite kid. Words are spells in your mouth. 
you speak in order to change something, you know. So what words are you speaking? What spells are you casting? Words are important. And to anyone with a non-traditional, you know, career path, as you call it, like, what words are you speaking? What spells are you casting? Why do you want it? You know, and why does it fulfill you? Do you love it? Right? Can you stay committed to that feeling over that thing? Like I think uh, something I try to uh, tell young young artists or young creatives is we think we want things, but we really what we're chasing is feelings. Like we think that this will give us this, but I encourage anyone who's, you know, exploring their dreams because it's going to be hard, like mm-hmm. to not sugarcoat it. There will be no's and there will be setbacks, you know, but what allows you to keep returning is knowing the feeling that you're seeking. Is it peace? Is it happiness? And that if you start tapping into that feeling now, the things will manifest themselves around that. Feeling before things, not things that get you feelings because that's fleeting. It's fleeting, yeah. And so think about it. What feeling are you seeking? Validation, acceptance, love, belonging. So you start creating those feelings for you and for others, all those things, they're just going to manifest around you. And, you know, the obvious is keep going. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's excellent advice. It's so true. The feelings, the things are, they come and go. But this is the first time I've experienced work that really makes me feel alive and really, really happy and really joyous as far as storytelling is going, and I hadn't experienced it before. And so... That's cool. Congrats. Thank you. It's interesting because I'm on my own No Straight Path journey now, ironically, and I've always been on a very linear path for much of my life. And so now to be on a path where there's an unknown and there's uncertainty, but I'm pouring into my passions, you see the power of possibility and you see how opportunities kind of just can come your way if you continue to put the work in. I think brownness is connected to no straight path, meaning, right? Like it's removing ourselves from that binary thinking. Like, yeah, I read this book, so it's got to be like this. Or, this is the way, you know, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this versus putting yourself in a state that says like, no, I'm allowing myself to be surprised. There isn't one way. There is never one way. And every book you've ever read that showed you a way, that's because it was their way. Like they actually walked the walk. You know, that's their map. It doesn't have to be your map. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love what you're doing. You're doing amazing work now. Is there any mission you have or the purpose behind your work? You know, what do you want to do with the storytelling? I want to be a check signer. I always say that it's nice to receive fat checks. It's even better to sign them. And things start to really change when people who look like you, Ashley, who look like me, start signing checks. Mm. You know, it's a top-down approach, not a bottom-up approach. And so, I want to sign checks and I want to put young creatives, young brown and black creatives in positions to succeed and to have their stories told. That's what I'm going to do. I'm excited to continue to, you know, just follow your journey. And do you have any final thoughts? Final thoughts are to those people listening who are on their own no straight path or contemplating their no straight path, be still, be still, be still, be still and really listen to why you want to be on that curvy road of no straight path. You know, find your why. 
find your why, get intimate with it, make love to it, take it to the bathroom, you know, fight it, treat it like that lover who sees you better than you see yourself. And then you're going to know if it's really the path for you. Mic drop. I love it. (laughs) You're so deep. Wish I can be. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.